If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. The flow of time is always cruel. Its speed seems different for each person, but no one can change it. A thing that doesn't change with time is a memory of younger days. While in the midst of pandemonium, looking back on days gone may bring a reprieve. But what do these lands have to look back on? When the goddesses descended and created this world, eras of innocence were fleeting. The demon king demise saw to that end. The curse was cast upon power, wisdom, and courage. Cycles of war and reincarnation began. And for those who played central roles, the fond memories of youth were as beacons, reminders that things could be better. They had to be better. We have new stories to learn about the foundations of Hyrule, but before we can fully experience them, we have to walk beside familiar faces in the present for a short while. It's been perhaps four or five years since the Calamity was defeated, and our young friends are now adults through and through. After the beast Ganon was banished, the Master Sword was delivered to the Great Deku Tree so that it could bathe in sacred power to heal and strengthen itself. And now, these few years later, it's ready to be collected, and these two are going to need it where they're going. You see, while settlements and towns have been revitalized or rebuilt, the castle itself is a different story. The unknowns of what lies beneath it have stalled its reclamation. There are signs of what Zelda calls gloom about, and it's dangerous, it's evil, quite akin to the malice that the Calamity brought forth some 100 years ago. Such a poor omen cannot be ignored. So, Zelda and her trusted researchers have been studying it. It's led them to this point. With Link once again possessing the Master Sword, the two of them feel prepared to delve into the underground. They find very intentional tunnels beneath the castle, a massive system that no one even knew existed. King Roam, Zelda's father, was aware that there was something under the castle, but knowledge of precisely what was there had been long lost to time. It had been considered a taboo topic that only a few within the royal family knew of, and it was never to be discussed, let alone explored. So, Zelda was never given a proper education on why it was never to be unearthed. As they check deeper, the Master Sword begins to glow, a response to something evil nearby. But so too nearby is ancient architecture and writing about people called the Zonai. Zelda says that she's seen these designs during her studies, that the Zonai were around during the earliest legends of the land. They hailed from a civilization in the sky and possessed godlike powers, but due to lack of record-keeping, very little is actually known about them. When Zelda spots a nearby statue depicting the Zonai, she's taken aback at the features on it. Deeper yet underground, they come across a treasure trove of history, an ancient mural depicting a war from long, long ago between tribes on the land and a demon king. Another that shows the Zonai to have descended from the heavens, then one that shows a union between the Zonai and a Hylian, a marriage that united the two races. Zelda knew of old stories within her family that her bloodline came from the union of gods who descended from the heavens, so this is what that meant. And if that's true, then it gives a face to these supposed gods, these Zonai from ancient history. This is how the Kingdom of Hyrule was founded, not purely from Hylian effort, but of the union between the Zonai and the Hylians. Together they created the Kingdom of Hyrule, and these two who were wed acted as the first king and queen of the kingdom. But whether they knew it or not, these lands were already cursed. One arose who sought to steal away the power of this young kingdom. He was called a Demon King, and battles were waged against them. Though she only knows tiny bits from her studies, Zelda determines that this was the imprisoning war that waged upon the dawn of the kingdom. Like so many tales that came after, the details of it were long lost to time. 
but finding these murals was like winning the information lottery. Excavations will need to be carried out to uncover the rest of it, but for now, they decide to follow the path further down into the depths. Each step feels more ominous than the last, yet still they proceed on through the darkness. While at first the gloom was mist-like and feeble, it becomes more tangible as they go. What gloom has reached the surface has proven dangerous to the health of Hyrule's inhabitants. This is a place they must be very careful in, because they are not immune to its effects. At the bottom of a great length of stairs, the way forward opens up into a cavern, and what lies at the center of it is confusing. Gloom emanates from an unseen source that's intertwined with strange blue and green light. And when they get closer, the source of the gloom becomes more clear. It's a corpse, a husk, adorned with golden jewelry befitting someone of power. Gloom is pumping out of its chest, but a glowing hand is holding the corpse in place. There's a story to be told here, but the scene is so strange. When they draw in close, the hand lets go of the body and limply falls to the ground, but a strange glowing gem tumbles free from it. Once it is in Zelda's hand, it begins to glow with a lovely golden light, and then all hell breaks loose. The corpse begins to shake and rise, and though it doesn't make it to its feet, its eyes ignite with a familiar shade of maliciousness. Embedded within the golden headdress is another of these gems, but before any words are delivered, an explosive force of gloom launches at them. It wraps around Link's right arm, draining him of vitality and infecting his limb. But another surge of gloom is right behind the first, and hitting it with the master sword shatters the blade. A small piece of it does cut the once corpse, which is amusing. The being speaks to mock the blade and its wielder. He knows them both by name. He recognizes them, but how? He mentions Raru, a familiar name to those who have studied the histories of Hyrule. They would know Raru as the founder of the Temple of Time, the one who sealed it away with the Master Sword, who ended the Interloper War. But there was no mention of a Raru directly contending with a being such as this. While Link and Zelda contend with the confusion of this creature's apparent resurrection, the terrible man does not waste a moment. He sends forth his gloom into the castle above, with such power that the castle is torn up from its roots. While it rises into the sky, he falls into the abyss. Then the ground beneath the princess and the knight begins to crumble away as well. Link tries to plunge into the darkness to grab Zelda to somehow lend her aid as he is sworn to do. This is the last time that they will see each other for weeks months or thousands of years. Zelda is quickly engulfed by light and then she's gone. The knight, however, is taken hold of by that creepy glowing arm that was holding back the evil being. It takes him by the hand and it pulls him upwards, then consciousness flees him. In their absence, an event called the upheaval commences. Huge land masses in the sky appear, parts of them crumble away and impact the ground below. Anyone caught beneath them would be crushed. Huge chasms open up with terrible gloom thrashing out from them. Touching it would be illness and death. And the gloom's miasma caused the weapons of Hyrule's defenders to decay, leaving inhabitants defenseless. But what happened here? How do we make sense of this? Well, we need to follow the steps of the princess to do that. The knight will slumber, recover, and face his adventures soon. But for now, we will walk beside Zelda. Though she fell into the darkness of an abyss, where the princess lands is not so horrific. It's a lovely field under the bright warm sun, and with her is that strange little gem she'd picked up in the underground. This place is almost the complete opposite from where she just was. Two figures approach the sleepy princess. Apparently her landing here wasn't really coincidental. One looks Hylian, the other looks like a goat man. But their faces are kind. 
They seem pleased when Zelda's eyes begin to open and are reassuring through her shocked confusion. The female introduces herself as Sonia, and the male asks the princess for her name. She stoically gives her name and her title as the daughter of King Rome of Hyrule. Funny, since these two only just founded the Kingdom of Hyrule. The male introduces himself as King Raru of Hyrule, and Sonia is his queen. Zelda has gone back in time to an age of legend, and oh, don't we just love time travel here. Though this is her homeland, it's not the world that she knows. The two parties spend a bit of time explaining themselves and the circumstances behind Zelda's very sudden appearance. The little gem that Zelda picked up in the underground is a secret stone. It amplifies the abilities of the wielder. Just so happens that Zelda shares with Sonya the ability to control the flow of time. That's how she was thrown back to this era. While Zelda and Raru get caught up in the mystery of it, it is Queen Sonya who brings a calm practicality. Zelda shares her time control ability, and Sonya senses within Zelda Raru's light powers. So this princess from the future is family to them, a long-off descendant. And they will treat her as such. Grandma Queen Sonya and Grandpa King Raru. Zelda's mother died when she was very, very young. As a result, she never received training on how to tap into the powers of her bloodline. And her relationship with her father was strained at best. Not only are Sonya and Raru calming factors in this frightening experience, but they're also champions and extremely powerful. This is a chance for Zelda to learn more about herself and her abilities, training that she was denied as a child. They know that Zelda wishes to return to her own era as soon as possible. In her proper time, something terrible is underway. While Raru wishes to pursue the matter more, Sonya puts a stop to it, for now. These troubles will cascade into a fixation if left unchecked and Sonya pulls back on the reins just a bit. Zelda need not solve all her problems at once. The young woman needs to slow down, one thing at a time. She needs some place to rest, to get cleaned up, and some fresh clothes. That will be their first task. They'll go back to the castle, tell everyone that Zelda is a distant relative, and wait for the answers to come, because wisdom takes time. Sonya's calm approach is precisely the balance that Zelda needs to see the forest for the trees. Apparently, it's what Raru needed too, to just slow down. Think about the immediate. He offers that they can go back to the castle and speak with Minoru, his older sister. She too has a secret stone, and she's more knowledgeable than anyone else about their people and the stones themselves. But first, the king and the queen. Sonia was born of the land, a Hylian priestess who was quick of wit and unceasing in her kindness. The one who would be her husband, Raru, was of the Zonai the people who descended from the sky, who in the future were seen as godlike. When Raru met the priestess Sonia, she spoke to him as she would any other, with honesty, without fear. And Raru always bent his head to hear her words. He cherished her honesty. They wed and began to create the kingdom of Hyrule. So close was their bond and so deep was their love that they counted each other as equals and trusted advisors. When Raru fled his kingly responsibilities to go out on a hunt, Sonya kept the castle in order, at least until she hunted him down and dragged him back to work. When peril arose in the lands, she deferred to and supported his judgment on such matters. To safeguard those who would be their subjects, they created shrines of light to seal away dark beings and monsters that walked the land. It was their hope that these shrines would keep safe the kingdom for many generations to come. The union of the Hylians and the Zonai was joyous, and the kingdom of Hyrule was blessed. Yet, at least by the time of Zelda's arrival some years later, the Zonai seemed a bit of a mystery, even to Raru and Minero themselves. They were the only two left, perhaps by choice, to found the kingdom. The rest of their people had left these lands, and Minero was the forefront of knowledge when it came to the Zonai. 
Despite these unknowns, Raru and Monero lived fully amongst the Hylians as beloved figures. Monero herself was immediately receptive to Zelda's story and interested in her Sheikah slate. The two of them quickly bonded over their tech intrigues and love of knowledge. So quick was their trust that once the two met, Zelda entrusted her tablet to Monero so that she could freely tinker with it. While Raru controlled light and Sonya controlled time, Monero controlled spirit. She could walk beyond her own body, and because of this, she viewed her body as a mere vessel. She studied Zonai technology to create constructs, with a plan that one day her body would die, but her soul could reside within something artificial. She wanted to be well prepared for that day, for no one truly lives forever, not even the Zonai. Mineru knows that Zelda's secret stone is what threw her through time, but that the princess can't control her powers means she has no chance of returning to her own era. The stones don't give one mastery over their abilities, they just amplify them. It will take time and testing to see if she can even be sent back. Then she drops a bit of buck-wild information, the process of draconification. Consume a secret stone, get turned into a dragon. In the process, the consumer will lose themselves, lose what makes them them, but in return, they'll gain immortality. The cost of it is so great that one arguably ceases to exist when they do it, therefore it is a forbidden act. I wonder if that's like a Chekhov's gun and we're going to come back to that later because that seems like a really random bit of information to just drop in the middle of a conversation like that, Monero. It's really, really weird that you did that. Raru encourages Zelda to keep the faith, to study and learn more about her own powers alongside Monero, Sonya, and himself. For the time being, this will be her home. For some time, she is happy. She learns, she makes bonds, but happiness is fleeting and the evils of the world are destined to appear. Back we are at the 100-year cycle of the Gerudo. Every century, a male is born who will be their king. There are some tribes that resist the reign of this king who live free in the deserts, but those that he rules over make for a terrifying foe. And the Gerudo king, Ganondorf, does not have love in his heart for the king and queen of this fledgling Hyrule. From the desert, he leads attacks on Hylian settlements. One particular night, a swarm of Mulduga are released at the borders of the kingdom. It's an act of outright aggression from the Gerudo forces, but as a display of power and dominance, Sonya and Raru ready an attack against the approaching monsters. And young Zelda, who's already grown mighty, joins her powers to theirs at Sonya's encouragement. And the beam they launch is like a goddamn WMD. They absolutely obliterate the approaching swarm and send a very clear message to the would-be invader Ganondorf. Yet, his interpretation is perhaps not what one might expect. The Gerudo King takes from this display that brute force won't be enough. He will not cease or stand down, he'll just change tactics. He spots the mythic secret stones upon the trio across the canyon, and he knows that those are the backbone of their insane light show. Ganondorf needs to get closer, and he needs to plan his moves carefully he will make a show of fealty to the crown. You see, for some time, Raru and Sonya had been extending peaceful invitations to the Gerudo King. They wished to extend an olive branch to the desert-falling folk, and now Ganondorf will accept that invitation. Regardless of his aggressions in the past, he is welcomed to the castle as a guest in an effort to make peace. But speaking with Ganondorf is just harrowing. His words are like sidewinders in the sand, seamless and gliding. Yet there is no mistaking the truth of his nature. He claims that his people desire to join the kingdom as faithful servants, yet his eyes fall upon the secret stones this court wears as the king speaks. And Raru is no fool. He knows the evil intentions behind all of this even if he can't quite place Ganondorf's plans. 
Sonia too meets Ganondorf's gaze with temperance and a polite smile. And then the word games commence. How conveniently wonderful for the blessed Zonai that he has claimed power and a Hylian wife. While those born of the land carve out their own paths, most impressive, yet also unfortunate that the Zonai are gone now, save Raru and his sister. It's a venomous question that he's asking without actually saying the words. Who will stop me when you're gone? The exchange between the two kings is tense at best. The queen sits in steady observation, and Zelda's fear intensifies when she realizes the gravity of this Gerudo king. She had first-hand experience from Calamity Ganon, and that corpse that she and Link found, well, the similarities here are just too much to be ignored. After the evil king's departure, Zelda tries to extend counsel to Raru of this man's intentions, but the king of Hyrule is well aware. He accepted Ganondorf's presence in order to keep him close and under a watchful eye. Zelda spent a great deal of time with the king and the queen, and she learned much under Sonya's tutelage, who was ever patient and diligent with the princess's education. Zelda told them bits about her life, about her era, and about Link. Talking about the knight seemed to make her happy, and his exploits made for amazing stories. While Zelda clearly longed to return home, Sonya sensed that the troubles of this era also weighed heavily upon her. But the queen encouraged her to worry about getting herself back to her own era, to not worry over the past. They can take care of things. Zelda need not carry the weight of the world. But strange things began to happen around the castle grounds. A ghost-like, lifeless-eyed Zelda would be spotted walking around at night. And then come the morning time, the princess would have no recollection of it. It happened often enough that servants made note of it. It was just creepy and strange. While this carried on, Mineru and Zelda began making plans to help the future, specifically Link. They decided to raise a temple into the sky, which would come to his aid immediately following Zelda's disappearance from that era. It would contain Zonai tech and constructs from this era, protected with wards to keep evil away, and it would be outfitted to help him medically and provisionally. Remember, the last she saw of Link, his entire arm had been infected with gloom. He would be in dire need of medical attention. But readying the temple and building the mechanics to get it up into the sky would take a great deal of time. And unfortunately... It was not something that they would get to see completed. One terrible night, Sonya answered a summons from Zelda. But the wise queen knew that this was a scheme that was being played. A false princess was in their midst. So she gathered the true princess and made her aware of the ploy. While the real princess Zelda hid herself away, Queen Sonya greeted the false princess. It was a puppet of Ganondorf, lacking any true life. When the puppet attacked the queen, the bitter knife was turned away by the true princess. The plot was foiled and the assassination failed. Yet, neither of them anticipated that Ganondorf himself would appear on that terrace. The Gerudo King delivers a strike to the back of Queen Sonya so vicious and powerful that it is fatal. She chokes briefly before falling to the ground and Ganondorf takes from her the secret stone. Within him is the curse of the Demon King of old, which holds power, wisdom, and courage in a cycle of reincarnation and conflict. This secret stone will amplify what's already within him. As his strength ignites and his power grows, the moon turns blood red and millions of evil flood the land. He much resembles his predecessor now, the old Demon King Demise. All this done with a secret stone, and not a trace nor sign of the Triforce itself to be seen. King Raru finally makes his appearance, but for all his strength as a Zonai, not even he can stop what is already happening here. Ganondorf sends an attack at the king, and all Raru can do is stave it off. Zelda uses her upgraded slate to transport them away. 
They have no way to impede this new demon king. He will rain hellfire over the lands with his new forces. Though he doesn't take the castle immediately, his return is imminent. His domination will be a slow and painful one, which he himself will lead. The days drag on, his conquest begins, and in the meantime, Queen Sonia is buried in what eventually would be known as the Forgotten Temple. Raru privately mourned her deeply, yet the cruel events taking place in real time could not be set aside. Leaders from around the kingdom stepped forward to convene with one another and to aid their king. They would try to stand against the rampaging Demon King, who first set out to conquer all of the Gerudo tribes of the desert. One by one, all the free villages fell. When the final one was conquered, it became apparent that they would all eventually fall. It was only a question of who was next. Raru believed that he was the one who had to stop the Demon King, but his elder sister Mineru gently chastised him for this. Ganondorf could not be stopped by any one person. It would take all of them working together to even stand a chance. So, Raru decides that he will equip them all for what lies ahead. Deep within the Forgotten Temple, beyond a sealed door, are four more secret stones, one for each of these leaders. To the Zora, the Rito, the Goron, and the Gerudo will each one go. They will be the sages of this era, the protectors against Ganondorf and servants to Raru, the King of Light. For an unknown length of time, the sages train to use their secret stones. Ganondorf power grows stronger, ever closer, and the day of their confrontation looms near. The day before the sages decide to intercept Ganondorf, Zelda meets with Raru at Sonya's gravesite. She tells him of the waking corpse that she and Link found beneath Hyrule Castle in her era. There is no doubt that it is the same Ganondorf that now haunts the kingdom, which means that Ganondorf will survive the next day, which means Raru will not. She recognizes Raru's arm. It's the same one that she saw upon the Demon King's husk, holding him in place. They will fail in stopping the evil. But the Zonai tells Zelda that he is honor-bound to stand against Ganondorf. As the king of this land, it falls upon him to see this through, and he feels that he needs to atone for his misjudgments with the Gerudo King. If defeating him is impossible, then they will rely upon the future, upon the swordsman Link. They will do everything in their power to aid and ready him in the far-off future, no matter what it takes. Raru knows that Zelda's presence here and now will make a difference in the future, but what that is, he does not know. That is for her to discover, and he will not waver against the dangers of the morrow. That fateful day, when the sages moved against Ganondorf, things further fell apart. The Demon King had so grown in power that not even all seven of them together stood a chance. He defeated them all. When it was nearly all said and done, there were injuries abound and Mineru was fatally infected with gloom. But Raru knew what was demanded of him as the king, and he committed himself to one final act. The sages threw their weapons at the Demon King to distract him for just a moment. It was all Raru needed to close the gap between himself and the Gerudo. Once he had his hand upon the vile man's chest, their fates were sealed. Raru bound Ganondorf's heart and sealed his magic. There would be no defeat, only a stalemate. Like Zelda held the Calamity, Raru will hold Ganondorf no matter how long it takes. No matter how many thousands and thousands and thousands of years it took, years which would pass them both in the blink of an eye. But Raru would gladly pay this price if it meant safeguarding this kingdom and its future. He issued Ganondorf a warning. One day, a knight named Link would appear with a sword to seal the darkness. This swordsman will defeat him, and he would do well to remember his name.
In his final moments of life in this era, Ganondorf commits that name to memory and expresses that he looks forward to meeting him. And then, they're both gone. Alone now, in the temple meant for the sky, Zelda reflects over it all and speaks as though Link is there. Without Raru and Sonya's leadership, without their guidance, what is she supposed to do now? But something ushers her outside, it gets her attention. A golden light appears at the end of her path, floating over an altar. Her secret stone lights up in its presence, and her time abilities kick in. From that light comes the gloom-infested Master Sword, broken apart after Link used it against Ganondorf's gloom. The spirit within the blade tells her that Link is safe, but it must recover its strength before Link can face off against the resurrected Demon King thousands of years in the future. So this must be why she was brought back to this era. This must be her purpose, healing the blade that will seal away the darkness. The Master Sword will heal and be strengthened when exposed to sacred power, and she knows what she must do. But first, she will speak with the dying Mineru on this matter. With her death drawing ever close, Mineru has been making preparations for her soul to transfer into a construct. When Zelda convenes with her, she brings the Master Sword and tells her all that she knows. The sword broke against the Demon King's attack, but a small piece of it was able to cut him. This is good news. Zelda intends to repair it, empower it, and see it delivered back to that era so the knight can use it to stop Ganondorf, but how? Mineru recognizes that something like that would take centuries in the very least, and the whole plan falls apart when considering the logistics. How could Zelda bathe it in sacred power for that long? Well, she will pursue the forbidden path to see this through. Zelda has decided that she will consume her stone, lose her heart and her mind. She will become an immortal being, a dragon. Because truly, what does the life of one woman matter in the scheme against the Demon King? Raru was the King of Light, and he gave his life to hold Ganondorf in place. As a ruler, it is her duty to do the same, give everything up to protect her people. And though initially she dissents, Minero comes to see that this is the truth, and that there is no other way. So she too will devote herself to this goal. Her body soon will die from injuries, but Minero will be with them in spirit. Minero leaves her body behind and enters Zelda's Sheikah Slate. It had been customized and worked on in her era by the Sheikah researcher Pura, so Minero will have plenty to explore when she's active in spirit form. Zelda gives a tablet to a construct for safekeeping, as this temple will one day be raised into the sky. Then, she sees to her own final task. She stays long enough to speak her intentions aloud, reaffirming her commitment to this unknown ritual that she's about to carry out. It has to be this way. The weapon must be restored. There's no way for her to return home anyways. She was brought back to this time for this exact reason, so she consumes her secret stone. And the overwhelming process begins almost immediately. The Princess of Hyrule is able to reach the sword to hold it close before her form changes, before her mind and heart are cast away. Her final words are a command to Link, that he protects them all, and then she is gone. In her place, an immortal dragon flies into the sky with the Master Sword embedded in its skull to absorb the sacred power of this dragon for the countless coming centuries. Her human memories are cast into tears and fall to the ground below. Someday, the knight may find them and know what happened to her. Farewell, Zelda. The sages that remain watch her go, knowing what choice she has made. This was not something that they could help her with. But in the absence of the king, the queen, and the princess, they will have other things to see to. 
One day, they will raise this temple and its landmass up into the sky to be hidden away from the land below until Ganondorf's reawakening. Zelda's transformation will be omitted from retelling, the stories of what happened to the king and the queen widely lost to time. It had to be that way. It could not be risked that anyone go searching Raru and Ganondorf out. And in the coming centuries and millenniums that would pass, other heroes and villains would rise to carry out cycles of war and salvation. Yet as their adventures and stories played out, ever beneath their feet and high in the sky were the dead king, the pacified demon, and the princess, waiting for their times to come that they might return to this land and see through their cycle of the great evil's return. Now we return to our proper time, where our journey may begin. When last we saw him, Link was being taken away from the underground, having lost the princess and suffered a grievous wound upon his arm. He's been resting for some time in a safe place, and when finally he stirs, well, his arm has been replaced, and a voice calls out to him. Though he's initially on his guard, when the voice mentions Zelda, his defensiveness calms down a bit. The voice informs him that his arm was beyond saving, that it had to be replaced. No mention of what happened to his pants, though. Nearby is the deeply damaged Master Sword, having not made its journey back in time yet. It will be with him, for a time, until destiny calls it away. Making his way through this unknown cavern gets Link reacquainted with his limbs. He's lost all but a small bit of his vitality, like he's having to start all the way back at basic training. When he does emerge back into the sunlight, he's really high up. Like, how did he get up here? Furthermore, where the hell did these sky islands come from? Link didn't witness the upheaval. He was deep underground when it began, and then he was unconscious for an unknown length of time. So, it's time to start exploring. About this great sky island are old Zonai constructs still carrying out their functions, waiting for Link to arrive. One in particular holds the tablet containing Mineru, entrusted to it by Zelda herself thousands of years ago. Like his Sheikah Slate some years prior, it will help him navigate and catalog the lands, but where is Zelda herself? The construct says that the princess is at the spot marked on the tablet's map, so he immediately starts off with a sense of purpose and direction. His progress through the Great Sky Island gets him back into proper form, reteaches him how to take a swing and a hit, how to dive, swim, hunt, cook, how to manage varying temperatures and climb slopes. His map leads him to a great temple, the original Temple of Time, far different from the one on Hyrule's Great Plateau, and unfortunately it's sealed closed. His weird new hand has gotten him past a few of these strange gates, but this one will not allow him to pass. Finally, Raru himself appears, as a spirit. He's the one who had spoken to Link when he first woke up, the voice that explained his arm had to be removed due to gloom infection. Raru's body has long since wasted away, but he remains in this world in this form, to see through his obligations to Link. Seems that Link's handy-dandy new arm was Raru's when he was alive. It's the hand that held back Ganondorf all these eras. It looks like it's lost a bit of its luster and it needs to be restored to full power. Link can do that by visiting the shrines around the Sky Island. They're places filled with sacred light that Raru himself saw too long ago. There, he can impart abilities to Link, which will let him open the door to the Temple of Time and aid him in his ventures after. At the first shrine, Link gains the Ultra Hand. Grab and freely move items, attach them to other things. Sounds simple, but the possibilities are nigh endless with the right imagination. At the end of this shrine, and all shrines that he completes in the future, he receives a Light of Blessing. These will be usable at Hylia statues to increase his life or his stamina, a very familiar mechanic from adventures years prior. 
At the next shrine across the island, Raru grants him the Fuse ability. Now weapons and shields can be added to or modified to make them extra spicy. Shields especially get fun when Zonai Tech gets applied to it. Then, on the other side of the island, and up the hellscape of a cold mountain, Link gets one of the neatest additions to his arsenal yet, the Ascend ability. Simply put, move up through solid material and then come out the top. This will alleviate some climbs and time-consuming obstacles if Link can find a place to ascend through the mass. As Link travels around the island, he gets the real feel for vehicle creation as well. Attaching Zonai fans and rockets to gliders and wood slabs to make boats or basic cars, or learning to put mining carts up on tracks with resources available. It's a lot of fun and it really rewards out-of-the-box thinking, though it does require patience especially in the beginning. But now that he has cleared the three shines that Raru pointed out, it's time to get back to that sealed Temple of Time. Within, ancient machinery is still running. Upon an altar is a massive glowing kidney bean-looking thing. It doesn't really do anything when he gets close, so he reaches out and he touches it. The light within it becomes blinding, and Link is taken to a strange place. In this realm between places, Zelda is floating before an altar. Her eyes are closed and she seems peaceful. This is an echo of the princess, kept here waiting from the past out of sheer will. She simply reaches out a hand to him, nothing more. When their hands join, she imparts a gift of her own to the knight, the ability to alter the flow of time, but only in a limited scope. She can only exist here for a brief time, as Zelda herself has been lost within another form, though Link doesn't know what's really happened to her. From what he witnessed, she was there, and then she just wasn't. Back in the Temple of Time, Link finds himself possessing a new ability, Recall. It will reverse the movement of an object back to its resting spot. This gift and the appearance of Zelda is a surprise to Raru as well. Unfortunately, Link cannot open the final door of the Temple of Time. He doesn't possess enough vitality to open it. He'll need to get one more Light of Blessing to get a little extra life. Then, he should be good to go. Raru guides him to one more of the shrines on the island. Using Zelda's tablet, Link can fast travel to old gates that he's visited before. So at least his trip back to the other side of the island won't be as long this time. After tracking down the shrine, he has to make use of his recall ability to get through it. If he can't make it past the trials of this shrine, then he's going to have trouble in the future. It really puts into practice how powerful this and his other abilities are, the potential that they can contain. He makes it through this final shrine, and he claims the last light of blessing that he will need to get through the temple. He teleports back, gets another vitality heart from the statue, and gets that door open. Raru meets him before he goes too far. He's glad to see that the knight is recovering. When Raru brought him here, he was almost beyond saving. The old king is glad to have finally gotten to meet Link. After all, Zelda had told him so much about their adventures, and Link is to be the hope of this kingdom. But, well, those are fond memories of the past. Raru has done all that he can for Zelda, the rest is up to Link. It's time for the ancient Zonai king to pass from this world. After all, his queen is waiting for him. At the end of the broken path before him, the same one that Zelda walked before her grand transformation, is a small altar with a golden light floating above it. The sigil that Zelda placed upon his hand reacts to it, followed by the Master Sword. He can't possibly know what this is, but he goes along with it on faith. He takes out the decayed blade and puts it into the light. The weapon is wrapped in sacred power and taken far, far back in time. Back to after Raru stalemated Ganondorf and Zelda was still wondering how to get back home. It's now safely in her possession, yet already back in this era, hidden away someplace safe. Once it's gone, a grand dragon ascends into the sky, bellowing out over the lands below. 
It's not the only one that graces the sky. Three others can be seen in flight, but their stories are not yet ones for us to know, because this is definitely the second story in a trilogy, right? Well, the clouds part, revealing the familiar land of Hyrule below. And thankfully, this isn't like the Calamity when Link and Zelda disappeared for a hundred years. It's all quite familiar to the knight. A voice calls to him, that of Zelda, urging him on to find her. And well, you know, he doesn't need to be told twice. The knight plunges from the sky island far, far down to the landmass below. And the impact with the water breaks every bone in his body. Just kidding, he's fine. Smile. First order of business is getting back in contact with the Sheikah researchers, folks who could give Link a rundown on what has been going on since he vanished. And, you know, of course, there's absolutely no distractions, no monster forts to be conquered or caves to be explored, Koroks to be thrown into lakes, food to be cooked. It's 100% a straight shot from point A to point B, as is befitting a true hero. So, 26 hours later, Link makes it to Lookout Landing. In the years since the Calamity was destroyed, this settlement was erected outside Old Hyrule Castle as a makeshift town of sorts. Everyone here is very familiar with Link, and his return is celebrated. He hasn't been gone for too long, but his and Zelda's absence has been worrisome. There are still parties being assembled to search for them, and crews coming together to form monster-hunting caravans. Though, when the upheaval happened, all their weapons were made to corrupt and decay, making the process all the more difficult and dangerous. But all who greet Link tell him that he needs to tend to his own agenda right now. He needs to go speak with Pura for an update and to make a plan. When Link first met Pura, she was in the body of a child, the result of an experiment. In actuality, she is very, very old. And now, these few years later, she's grown back into the form of a young lady. Hearing that Link is back brings her rampaging out of her lab, demanding to know where he has been. Her language still kind of teeters between old, curious woman and strange child prodigy, but they're just her mannerisms. She immediately hones in on his weird arm, but rather than diving into an interrogation, she lets Link tell her everything that has happened since he and Zelda departed for the castle. She quickly believes every bit of his story and starts putting together the bigger picture, except there's still so much data missing that all she can do is take this step by step. First, Pura wants Link to go see the captain in charge of the search for Zelda near the castle. It's a fellow named Hawes. Find out what has been going on over there and how Link can aid him in the search. They're acting on faith that the princess is still under the castle, until proven otherwise. So off he goes, back to the castle. Seems like those shrines that he first saw up on the Sky Island have made their way down to the surface as well. When time allows, he'll drop by to clear them out and get those handy-dandy lights of blessing that will make him a bit more sturdy and hearty. While approaching the castle grounds, one can't help but sigh in relief because there are no ancient guardians about. The old Sheikah tech that ran amok here during the Calamity is long gone. Link greets all the guards as he treks up the ramparts. They all give him a hearty hello and point him up the path towards the captain. And Haas himself is thrilled to see that Link is well. They've been trying to search for the two of them, but the sheer amount of gloom here makes it nigh impossible to progress any further. Then, across the canyon where the castle once was, one of the soldiers spots Zelda, watching them intently as though waiting for them to notice her and then she floats up into the air and vanishes into a golden light. It's super weird and not at all comforting. Either something is wrong with her that she would flee so quickly, or she's being standoffish to guide them? The guards that are still here will withdraw for now since they don't seem to need search parties anymore, and Link will return to Pura to convene on this weird happening. The elder Sheikah researcher is, of course, shocked and confused at Zelda's appearance, but decides that they should refocus their energies towards the upheaval rather than search and rescue. They'll look for clues as to the princess's whereabouts as they go. For now, there are a few regions that need looked into. 
As he goes, Link will need to activate Skyview Towers that have been built since the Calamity. They function much the same as the old Sheikah Towers that help them map out the lands, though these are a bit more in your face. While Pura gets the tower ready, Link takes a few, you know, days to look around Lookout Landing, the emergency shelter, do some buying and selling, talk with folks to get the latest gossip. During a peaceful night, something dreadful appears. It's that blood moon. It's a symbol of Ganondorf's return, that his influence is creeping across the land. His minions, which were cut down during this cycle, will be returned to life once again, ensuring that any progress made in halting their spread throughout Hyrule will be undone. This makes their dominion over the land an inevitability and is a terrible reminder to all who witness it that doom is on the horizon. Once Pura has the Skyview Tower ready, Link gets a crash course on how to get the data from them. There will be several of these towers all around the land, ready for him to use for geographical information. He just has to reach them, make sure that they're on and operable, and then initiate a scan. His scan! that he'll take with the Purapad, about 10,000 feet up, maybe 20,000, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, really high up. Pura gives Link a handy-dandy paraglider, and then, ready or not, the Skyview Tower throws Link high into the sky so that he can scan the land below. It feeds the data down into the tower and uploads a map of the region into the tablet. This is also a good way to reach random sky islands that haven't already fallen to the ground, and a handy-dandy way to get around a particular region that is hard to travel on foot. Once he has the map and is safely back down on the ground, Pura tells him that strange phenomena have been occurring all over Hyrule since the upheaval, events that really do need to be investigated. He'll need to visit the territories of the Rito to the northwest, the Goron to the northeast, the Gerudo in the southwest, and the Zora to the southeast. First up, it's time to trek to Hebra Mountain to visit the Rito. Pura encourages him to make contact with a reporter near the entrance to the village. They've been investigating the princess's disappearance, and they would be a good ally to have in the search. En route, Link explores old town ruins, sneaks past a Henox, fights a Henox, flees from a Mad Max-style battle talus, does shrines, puts up signs, does spelunking, unlocks Skyview Towers, socializes at stables, accidentally sets off a bomb in his face, collects Korok poop for Hestu, has a complete emotional breakdown after what the hell this is rushes at him, accidentally sets off another bomb in his own face, explores some sky islands, does some skydiving, it's just adventure after adventure. But the closer he gets to Hebra Mountain, the more trouble he can see on the horizon. Something is happening in the sky. It's a massive event. Furthermore, extreme cold is covering the territory. The Rito established their village in a very mild zone, away from the freezing peaks of the mountain. But the cold has cascaded to completely cover it now. He manages to find that reporter at the Lucky Clover Gazette. The reporter's name is Penn, and he'll be around Hyrule investigating what's going on with the princess. Word has gotten back to him that there have been sightings around the kingdom in very strange circumstances. So, as he ventures about, Link can touch bases with Pen around the many stables in Hyrule to get side quests and insight into these mysteries. The Gazette's editor, Tracy, lets Link know that Pura herself asked for them to carry out this investigation, and they will assist Link in any way they can with information. There's even a cool set of froggy armor in it for him if he helps Pen out in the field. But Pen and Tracy can't help with the immediate issues on the mountain. The bridge to the village has been taken out, and supply shipments haven't been able to reach the Rito. They were already having a food crisis, so this is highly concerning. The Rito have been cut off from the world. They can't grow their own food. The extreme cold and snowstorms have kept them grounded. Link can float his way over, but without supplies and aid reaching them, the Rito are on a very strict time limit. Once he's past the bridge, there's really no one on the path up to the village. It's so quiet, save the howling winds in the distance. The first signs of life that he spots are three young Rito girls practicing a song together. 
They look relatively healthy and in high spirits, so maybe things aren't dire yet. The inn is still welcoming to guests, businesses are trying to operate, but they're mostly run by young Rito. The adults have had to brave the storms to search for food and supplies around the mountain, while the children remain behind to see to the village. The elder of the Rito is now the warrior Tiba. Years ago, Tiba and Link worked together to disable the defense system of the divine beast Va Meadow. Now he's running the joint, and his son Tulin is just as stubborn as he is. Poor Seiki must really have her hands full with the two of them. Tolan is arguing with his dad about something, but when the younger guy sees Link, he's overjoyed at his presence. He has grown quite a lot since the time of the Calamity, but clearly has a lot of maturing left to do. He is not an adult, but hates that his father treats him like a child. He's trying to put on his britches before he's big enough to fill them. Tolan believes that he can take on the world, that he doesn't need help, that he can solve the mysteries of the blizzard by himself. When his father tries to argue with this point of view, Tolan becomes defensive and argumentative and he takes off from the village in a bit of a tantrum. His father, Tiba, learned his lesson some years ago about ego and hard-headedness, and now his son is following in his footsteps. He has lessons to learn as well. Seiki tells Link about the story of the Rita when long ago they faced a different sort of upheaval. Back then, a great flying ship appeared to save the village, and there's been a lot of talk about that old story and if it could be happening again. Some Rito have reported seeing a massive ship in the sky. With the sudden blizzards and those reported sightings, it's hard to dissociate the two things. The skies are so turbulent that no one can see what's going on inside of the storm or even get close enough to try. With the broken down roads and wild storms ravaging the mountain, the Rito cannot contribute to helping Link find Zelda. Tiba tells him to find Hearth, that he would be the most likely to have information about the princess, but that's as much as Tiba can do for Link right now. He has other crises to see to. Hearth is across the valley at a cabin, helping with scavenging and resource collection. He says that he doesn't know anything about the princess, and that he really can't take time to help Link out given their situation. But Link's best bet would actually be Tulin. The young fellow has developed flying techniques that help him move through the blizzards, which has made him an invaluable scout for the landlocked adults. It's also the source of Tulin's ego. He knows that his technique makes him a cut above the rest and sort of lauds it over others. He's on track to becoming the next Rivali, from the sounds of it. Well, the search for this kid takes Link high into the mountains where conditions are extreme and foes are powerful. He finds a few other Rito as he goes within caves, trying to gather up resources and figuring out the logistics of moving them. They point him in the direction he needs to go to find Tulin, and admittedly, it's a rough climb for the night but he tracks him down atop a peak. The kid has lost his bow to some monsters that he was careless around, and he's beating himself up over it. It's good that he didn't try to fix the situation himself, though. It could have taken things from very unfortunate to just tragic. Tulin instead asks Link to help him get it back. The young Rito has immense respect for the knight, so it makes sense to him. His wind gust ability will help propel Link forward as he glides, so they can travel long distances across the mountain with ease. So long as Link is floating with the paraglider, Tulin can help propel him forward. They work together, retrieving Tulin's prize bow, and then take care of a gaggle of fiends as partners. This is a good experience for Tulin. He's getting a first-hand education on the importance of teamwork and communication. He did not stand a chance on his own, and with the help of someone stronger, the playing field was completely leveled. When the fight is over, Hearth appears in the sky. He saw everything the two had done, and the boy admits that he had ignored his elders by coming up here alone. He thought that he could handle the search, and losing his bow was a consequence of that ego. And Hearth very bluntly says that these sorts of outbursts are why they still treat him like a child, because he's acting like one. 
and to his credit, Tolan acknowledges that he has been wrong. He's going to stop behaving like a lone hunter and instead work with his flock. Then Tolan discloses that he dropped his bow because he thought he saw the Princess Zelda, which is kind of a big detail to forget, kiddo. He says that he was so surprised by her appearance that he dropped his guard and he lost his weapon, but she was gone as quickly as she appeared. She just sort of flew up into the clouds. Harth encourages Tolan to go with Link to help him. They've received reports that the source of the snowstorms is within the vortex in the sky, a place that none of the adults can reach. Tolan and Link working together is their best bet now. They need to get up into the vortex from the top. Tolan's own father has said that once the boy knows the value of teamwork and humility, then he will be the greatest of the Rita warriors. Knowing that his father has faith in him is empowering for the young guy, and he respects the gravity of the situation now. Tolan will accompany Link into the sky, and together they will find a way to save the Rito. It will be dangerous, potentially lethal, but they must try, no matter the cost to them. The two of them make it a short distance up before reality sinks in. How high it is, how easy it will be to fall, just how massive the storm clouds are. They hear a voice calling out to them from the sky, drawing their attention up to a ship, a massive ship in the sky. This is just the first of the harrowing obstacles the knight will have to face before this story concludes. The baby steps of the journey. And this is where he has to reach. Ah, piss.